Thanks to Delupa for sponsoring this season of Compounders. Delupa scales the velocity of an investment team's idea generation by allowing analysts to spend less time locating and manually inputting meaningful disclosures into Excel. As someone who spends a lot of time updating models with data that some of the other major platforms, such as Bloomberg and Capital IQ, don't capture, I have seen firsthand how much time Delupa can save professional investors. Specifically, Delupa captures data from all company reported sources, including from footnotes, MDNAs, and investor presentations. Their data sheets also include gap to non-gap adjustments, guidance, and all company-specific KPIs. Each data point is auditable to the source for easy verification and accuracy. Delupa's Excel plugin can also update existing models for the latest quarter in just a single click. More bulge bracket banks and top-tier investment managers are trusting Delupa for assistance in initiating coverage, building and maintaining industry dashboards, and keeping models up to date. Please visit www.delupa.com compounders to learn more about how Delupa can help increase your team's speed to differentiated insight. Welcome to the Compounders Podcast. On this show, we explore the topic of compounding from various angles, including through interviews with public and private company executives, investors who focus on compounders, and newer investment firms that are building a business they hope will become more valuable over time. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of SNN or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not investment advice and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending the purchase or sale of any securities. The hosts and guests may be beneficial owners of the securities discussed. You should not assume that the securities discussed are or will be profitable. My guest on the show today is Evan Curtis, the Executive Director of Investments at Vanamore, a private real estate investment firm. Given the ongoing turmoil in the real estate market, first caused by COVID and then exacerbated by the sharp rise in interest rates, I was excited to have Evan on as our first real estate-focused private investor. In this wide-ranging conversation, we discussed the history of Vanamore, including the real estate verticals it has chosen to focus on, what Evan has learned about investing through real estate cycles, the opportunity set in investing in commercial real estate right now, how Vanamore incorporates data and technology within its process, and the benefits of running a small, nimble investment firm. And without any further ado, here's my conversation with Evan Curtis of Vanamore Investments. Evan, I'd love to hear the origin story of Vanamore and how you got involved there. Thanks, Ben. Yeah, happy to happy to give some color. So Vanamore has been around since since 2017. Um, and the, the founder, his name is, is Bobby Larson. He, he's got a, a long track record kind of in the multifamily value add space, which is where Vanamore, Vanamore focuses. And I guess my, my origin story with Vanamore is, is, uh, I worked at PIMCO, uh, Pacific Investment Management Company for about 12 years. And I overlapped there with Bobby Larson when he worked at PIMCO, um, as well. So we, we got to know each other a little bit then. Uh, kind of went off our our separate ways. He went to business school, um, then went to uh, a large value add multifamily shop for a number of years um, before kind of starting at Vanamore. And I kind of went off and was at Pimco for for a number of years, and then another residential real estate company for uh, about five years before we kind of ultimately re- reconnected and and said, look, I think it's an interesting time in the market. Um, Vanamore, I know, is looking to grow its grow its portfolio. So let's you know let's see if we can we can really kind of 
build a, a, a diversified, strong portfolio that can provide kind of the returns and expectations that we hope it can. And what was the opportunity in 2017 that that Bobby saw? I mean, it's got to be totally different than than the world today. What what was he looking to build then that you know whatever spurred him on to create this this vehicle? Sure. So the company that he was he was working for was called is called MG Properties. They're they're a fairly large player again in this this value add multifamily space, um, and they they have they had a pretty interesting and and scalable and sizable model that they were using that was was growing to a size that that they were looking at institutional sized assets and you know Bobby was was seeing opportunity there as well as um assets that were a little bit a little bit lower in, in purchase price and you know thought that that there would be opportunity to execute a similar model on kind of the middle market space where we're focused on which we we define as between 5 million and 50 million in in purchase price so um kind of taking some of the the ideas from a very successful model that he helped implement and grow at MG Properties and you know working on something something separately on his own in in the institutional world versus kind of the middle market world right like i guess institutionals maybe like 100 million dollars plus in purchase price i'm just just throwing numbers out there maybe you can you can correct me if that's wrong but like is that is the thesis that there's more inefficiency as you go further and further down the purchase price right like you know whatever like a trophy office building anybody can 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 come in and or, or a trophy multifam anyone can come in and look at but you know smaller value add lease up situations you know just scrappier maybe more inefficiently priced is that maybe talk to me a little bit about how how that works as you go up and down the size of the um you know on, of the equity check you have to write yeah you know i i would say 30 million plus you can kind of get the institutions looking at deals at that size um the a lot of what you're saying is definitely true you get kind of into the smaller deals a lot of times you have you have an you you have an asset that's been owned by a number of uh, for a number of years by a mom and pop type of owner who you know they they have a really low basis they've held it for ten plus years they don't really need to execute a value add strategy they've kind of ridden up the 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 beta wave over the years and you know they're 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 happy exiting at a price that is is very attractive from their perspective and you know, from, from our perspective, it, it's also an opportunity and a story that we like where, you know, you've had one owner for a number of years, the units haven't been, haven't been updated in maybe 10 plus years. So you have, you have a good opportunity to kind of execute that where I think that's a little bit more prevalent on the smaller deals than, than the institutionally owned and managed assets in the 30 million plus side. You certainly still see it though, um, on, on those larger deals, but I think it's a little less frequent and and there's there's definitely just well, more inefficiencies usually kind of in the way that properties are run at that that lower size um be it on the property management side or kind of on the the leasing strategy or just on on kind of keeping up keeping up with with uh market rents so generally again you know you see more opportunity uh in the middle market and and that's and less competition as well. So you're you're competing against other folks who are 
um, you know, sophisticated, but that have a lot less kind of support and experience in a lot of cases in, in the market. So I think that's also, you know, one of the things that, that we like about our small Vanamore team is, is all of us come from kind of an institutional background where, um, we're, we're, we're competing with, with folks in a space that we feel comfortable, comfortable about with our kind of ex experience and ability to execute. I'm curious about how the firm is structured. Do you have a fund? Do you invest via your balance sheet? Tell us a little bit about how you put capital to work. Sure. So we use uh, a syndication model uh, ha and have historically. So that's one where you have uh, a GPLP structure and we're, we're the general partner and we have a group of investors that ultimately come and invest alongside of us. Um, and we do that on an asset by asset basis. So we have a an equity stake in every deal that we acquire. Um, but we don't have a fund where it's kind of a blind pool fund where we're allocating to a specific uh, raise that we've we've already executed. Um, in, the, in the future, I think we ideally have kind of both structures. There's definitely pros and cons about the, the single asset piece and the, the, the fund structure, which happy to happy to go into if, if it makes sense. But, uh, you know, right now we're, we're operating on the, the single asset syndication model. And after working at PIMCO for a long time, what attracted you to do something more entrepreneurial um, and join Bobby at, at Vanamore? You know, I've always I've always kind of done real estate on the side um, of of my day job over the years um, at, a, at a small scale, I guess, and and have always enjoyed that and had kind of the entrepreneurial bug to ultimately do something at a at a, at a larger scale. So you know, I was it, it was a combination of a number of things. It was potentially joining the right team. Um, which I think Vanamore is the is the right team and the right vehicle. It was also, um, you know, you, you need personal uh, timing to line up. Um, you need market timing, which is one of the most important ones, I think, in, in my mind to line up. So yeah, I had been kind of contemplating, could I could I go off and do something smaller, or join a small shop for for a number of years, but was was at a point in the market where I was like, man, things are things are really, really hot and aggressive as far as pricing and valuations. And don't necessarily think that it's that it's the right time. But you know, I I joined Vanamore early 2023 and we had the the Fed kind of pivot at that point to aggressively raising rates in mid 2022. And you know there was there was considerable impacts to valuations that we were starting to see and a lot of other kind of um pieces were were lining up to in my mind and in in our mind what was going to make for a kind of a target rich opportunity going forward the timing is always is always tricky on it though you know i i thought 2023 would would bring a little bit more kind of transaction volume and and maybe stressed or distressed sellers but there really hasn't been a whole lot. I mean, transaction volume is down in the to the tune of seventy percent year over year. There's there's been a very wide bid ask gap between pricing that that sellers want to sell at and where buyers are are willing to buy at. And you know, you had the aggressive run up in interest rates, but you you don't have sellers adjusting that quickly to the to the move in, in cap rates. So you have you've we've seen cap rates kind of sliding sliding higher over the year, but. Um, a lot of people are still seeing that 2022 late 
2021 valuation where they could have potentially sold at, at peak pricing. And, you know, now they're seeing a substantial discount to that and they don't necessarily want to sell and buyers aren't willing to buy anywhere near those prices at this point as well. So um, it's an interesting, it's a very interesting market from our perspective, from an, from an opportunity, opportunity going forward. And you've been involved with several different areas within commercial real estate. I'm interested in how Vanamore settled specifically on what you call the multifamily need value add, which we'll get into what that means. But in, in terms of the, why multifam, why is this an interesting space within you know, whatever all the different verticals within commercial real estate you could you could play? Yeah, you know, I, I think I think multifamily makes sense for a lot of reasons. One is one is that really like kind of the ability to provide a product to someone that can that can ultimately improve their lives um, and has a incentive alignment component to that as well. So, you know, we we are executing, again, a value add strategy, which is a lot of times is improving the interior and the exterior of the unit and, and kind of making things run efficiently out of property. And, you know, the, the, the tenant sees it a little bit differently but but somewhat the same you know they want to they want to live somewhere that feels safe feels nice um and um that's something that we can do which which also keeps them kind of in a place where they're they're open and willing to stay in the unit for longer because they they like where they live and you know that flows down to the bottom line it reduces turnover expense which is one of the one of the very costly expenses if you have people moving out every 12 months. So you can have longer retention, which ultimately improves your bottom line. So that's that's definitely one piece that that I really like about the multifamily space. Um, th there's a couple other other areas as well. You know, it's I, I think it's you know, I think it's lower on when you think about the different commercial real estate assets, office, industrial, self-storage, uh, retail. I think it's lower on the spectrum of assets that could face a systemic or kind of functional obsolescence risk. So office is the prime example. You know, nobody really saw what happened to office coming, uh, which has which has really kind of slashed valuations by, you know, north of 50 percent in a lot of cases at this point. Uh, multifamily is, is not likely to be uh, in a situation like that, even though, you know, it's, it's hard to know what you don't know. But I think that's something that, that draws me to it, um, as well as right now. There's a there's a huge affordability gap between home ownership and and renting. It's that's the largest gap that we we've, we've ever seen. And and while that gap could could narrow, I think where it is now is is a very good um, kind of demand driver on a go forward basis. That you're going to have a lot of folks that are just unfortunately priced out of home ownership and will need to live in a uh, a, a, a uh, apartment or multifamily asset. So that's an, that's another reason. And then, and then lastly, why I like the asset class and, and kind of settled on it is it's also got good capital market support. So, you know, unlike the other assets that we, we discussed. So on the debt side, there's Fannie, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the agencies provide uh, lending to multifamily. And this has been even more um, pronounced with what has happened since the Fed started raising rates was you've seen you've seen banks really pull back. You've seen bridge lenders or debt funds really, really pull back. Um, but you know, the, the agencies are still in the market and lending and they are kind of the most most attractive op option at this point. And you know, they're they're likely going to be there regardless of what type of economic situation you're in. You you get a little bit of of kind of credit 
pull back from them as well, certainly, but you don't see them just say, hey, we're pencils down, we're not lending at this point in time. So, you know, liquidity in the market, I think, is is strong and and another reason why I like why I like the space. This season of Compounders is sponsored by Deluba. Deluba was founded by a former hedge fund analyst to bring simplicity to the investment process. Delupa offers an AI-driven single source for all company reported data and allows for investment teams to make the most informed decisions in the shortest amount of time. For more information, please visit delupa.com slash compounders. And in your response, you mentioned the idea of like not looking looking at 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 multifam as a place where you're not going to see a whole lot of distress because of the 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 lack of not as much risk of obsolescence would i be right in assessing your philosophy as investors as kind of like quality at a reasonable price versus looking for things that are distressed in some way i would say somewhat somewhat true you know we we on the value add side um you could it, it's a pretty broad way to categorize somebody as a value add um strategy i think at least so you know the the, the distressed assets you could be purchasing something that has you know 50 percent vacancy and you have to take it down to the studs um you know that's value add opportunistic type of type of deal um, where we are is is more on. I like to describe it as the the lighter value add side. So you know, one we're targeting ass- assets that are a little bit newer in vintage or construction. So we like we like properties that are that are built in the mid '80s or newer um, that that have somewhere between call it five and fifteen thousand dollars per door of capital expenditure um, that we use in our budget. So it's not stuff that we're looking to take down to the studs and rebuild and capture a $500, $700 rent premium. Um, there's inherently less risk in that type of business plan, which which we like. Um, we're, we shy away from the 60s and 70s and older product that has different systems, um, electrical and plumbing that that you you know can be very big ticket capital expenditure items but you don't necessarily get the same return on investment from that um but it it can it can blow up your budget real quickly as well so you know that that's another piece of if if the compensation kind of factor makes sense we we would look at that type of deal but the spread between 60s and 70s versus the newer newer product just hasn't hasn't made sense to us uh much recently um the the um again the the strategy is is to focus on on well located assets that we think can provide a good combination of cash flow and capital appreciation over the long term so focusing on on assets with positive financial leverage is also something for from the cash flow perspective something that that we really look for um so positive financial leverage meaning our our debt cost is is lower than our cap rate going in or at least neutral financial leverage and that's been one of the 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 biggest challenges because you've seen interest rate and debt costs go up as much and as fast as it has but you haven't seen cap rates cap rates move as quickly um so you know a a good combination of cash flow and and capital appreciation over long term is 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 definitely part of our our value add strategy and vanamore has an existing portfolio of real estate assets 
Can you give us a breakdown of what that looks like today in terms of regions? And I assume it's all multifam, but maybe maybe correct me if I'm wrong there. No, that that's that's right, and it it's pretty geographically diverse right now. Um, so we have um, our our current portfolio is is roughly 100 million um, in valuation. It's spread out across the Pacific Northwest. Um, we have an asset in California, Southern California, um, and we have one asset in Tampa, Florida, as well. So, um, it, as far as kind of geographic focus that we have, it's you know think of an an L shape on the West Coast, so Pacific Northwest down to California and across to Texas, plus plus Florida. Um, so it, it's we're covering a lot of markets, which I think. I think is a good thing right now, especially um, you see as we're kind of in this transitionary period of valuations moving, moving off of peak pricing, like we mentioned earlier, you've seen certain markets move slower and be impacted by various factors. So kind of being able to look at a number of different markets to get a sense of relative value, I think is important right now and um, ultimately help will help us kind of know where market pricing is because you know on the on the private private real estate side you don't have um liquidity and market pricing like you do in the in the public side so really kind of keeping a finger on the pulse of where things are actually transacting and and underwriting across a lot of different markets i think is is very helpful for our our process and how did you decide on those markets i mean uh, pacific northwest not so much, but certainly California towards Texas and Florida, you got the kind of like sun, the sun states in some ways. Like maybe talk a little bit about what you think about those markets and why why you've chosen to put capital work there. Yeah, you know, we we like the Sun Belt. Um California, we kind of, even though it's technically part of the Sun Belt, we kind of exclude it because it's it's a tricky market, even though we we own an asset um in San Diego there. But there's a number of hurdles from a regulatory perspective and and just a, a difficult ownership perspective that I think makes California a little bit less likely that we're going to we're going to acquire much over the next 12 to 18 months but you know you you've seen you've seen extremely strong population growth and job growth in the Sun Belt over the last 10 years i mean the, the Texas is in Arizona for example are consistently at the top of population growth and job growth you you've been you know, there's been a steady flow of corporate relocations to those to those states as well, and just much more kind of business friendly legislation over there. So, you know, we we like markets that are in in our mind going to kind of outperform over the long run, and we think that we think that those Sun Belt states will continue to see um, higher than national average growth from a population and again job growth perspective. So. You know, th think that there will be great opportunity. Um, I, I do think that there's a number of of near term headwinds that are coming to to various markets for some for very specific reasons. But um, over the long run, I think getting in at a, at a very good basis at a well located um, property, I think will will ultimately pay dividends down the road. And since you brought up the Sun Belt, might as well jump to to the question I had on that. There you and everybody else saw that job growth population growth right and there was a fair amount of um building of, of new multi-fam projects 
some of which are not even complete yet, from what I understand. Um, and that 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 there's a fair amount of supply that's going to be coming on in Sunbelt over the next few years. I mean, there was a lot of rent growth as well that was on top of that 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 kind of precipitated all of that spending. So, how do you think about the risks and opportunities in the Sun Belt, given that you guys weren't the only ones who had that insight about the about the attractiveness of those markets? Yeah, great, great question. I I think those reasons that you you specifically said are why there are near term challenges to these markets. Um, Long term. I think nothing really changes on on kind of the some of the, the comments that I think we continue to see good population growth and job growth in those markets. Um, but you, you saw a tremendous valuation increase in some of these markets, largely due to rent growth, like you said, that was was happening there. And um, what that has done is is those higher valuations spurred additional supply to you know that has eighteen to twenty four plus month lead time. And so you're you're seeing a, a very large amount of incoming supply that is scheduled to come in 2024. I mean, it's the the most supply that we've we've seen in in about 20 years, and and a lot of the markets coming uh, to be delivered by the end of 2024. So, you know, what what that's done is is it's put a lot of pressure on rent growth, where actually you have rent declines now. Um, and you know, I think that again is is going to be a near term hurdle. So it's it's had a it, it's absolutely had an impact on valuations, um, and uh, that's that's where we get excited. Which is you know we can potentially acquire assets that if we can you know buy them right, hold them over a long term period, will ultimately be um, holding a portfolio that. Is is well positioned to again create cash flow plus long term capital appreciation. So you know we we look at it as we're positioned well um, right now to ultimately capitalize on some potential stress and distress that we're starting to see um, across other operators that that maybe uh, acquired a little bit too aggressively or the market just kind of moved against them over the over the recent time period and they may have to sell at prices they didn't think that they would have to and is the edge there the ability just to look out seven years as opposed to having to service your debt you know whoever owns it now has to service their debt and has short-term pressure and interest rates are up and it's just like you're just you can look through the supply glut coming in 2024 and 25 and say you know in 2030, this is going to buy, you know, like whatever after 24, 25, it's going to be a really attractive market. And in 2030, this is going to be a really nice asset. Um, yeah. We could, you know, either hold on to a flip. Like I just, it's I just hard for me to think like in most of the real estate world, given that the, most business, most buildings have leverage on them, that a lot of people have the ability to remain patient and look through two years of potential stress in acquiring an asset in one of those markets. Yeah, you know, it's 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 a combination of the things that I think you you mentioned. So it's it's one our our some of our principles at Vanamore are we we like to be on the more conservative end of the way that we underwrite properties. And um I think that that has shown in the fact that our current portfolio is all still performing. So, you know, we have the portfolio that we we spoke about earlier. 
we have no debt that's coming coming due anytime for the the next three years um, and longer. So we're we're well positioned as far as kind of not being a stressed or distressed seller in the near term, which is which is not what everyone can say at this point in time. Um, and you know we we also that that is reflected in in the fact that you know we we underwrote conservative when conservatively the deals that we we did acquire and even though you know the market has moved against everybody it's not just not just like our properties didn't aren't feeling any any pressure at all but you know we underwrote them with kind of the conservative and realistic metrics that kind of allow us to continue to be be performing in this in this current environment and um Going forward, I, I think that you're going to see a good amount of a good amount of operators that aren't able to now raise and deploy equity because they have had um, some challenges. They've had they've had to make capital calls to their investors. Um, there's there's likely going to be a decent amount of of equity lost, in my opinion, as well from from certain owners and operators and investors. Um, so, you know, I, I think the longer term nature does make sense. Um, we, again, are are pretty selective in what we're acquiring. Um, so the the cash flow component, I think, is is very understated in kind of the impact to the total return of invest of an investment. Um, but I'll, I'll I'll just stop there. Yeah. So getting back to the edge and an efficiency aspect, I mean, I think scale is an advantage in most businesses. But in real estate, if you have to put hundred millions of dollars to work at a time, I mean, that really limits how opportunistic a firm can be. Maybe you can talk about the benefits of being able to write like a five million dollar check and not have to write a seventy-five million dollar check. Yeah, it's a it's a good point. I mean, when you get to the to deploying hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars of capital, you you are you're largely a kind of a, a capital allocator at that point in time, and and you're you're not really uh, it's nearly as as nimble and able to move again opportunistically on some of these these smaller assets that are maybe um, from a non institutionally owned uh, seller. So yeah, I, I think one of the one of the the big benefits of being able to write these checks is just being able to pursue these these deals that are sub institutional. Call it five to fifteen million, um, and that that really is is the space I think where you had a lot of overly aggressive buyers as well. So you know, one from a macro perspective, I like the space in general. Two, I think I think the timing of this space will will show itself as a as a, uh, more opportunity going forward. I mean, we talked a little bit on on the last comment on kind of the the hold period. You know, one of the the biggest things that has has happened is a lot of people purchased with floating rate debt in 2020, 2021. Um and that debt, you know, looks a lot different than the single family home debt where you know, you're typically putting in a buying a property with a 30-year fixed rate mortgage. Uh, on the on the commercial side, a lot of people used floating rate debt, which has a three-year um, maturity 
point. So a lot of that debt is coming due. And when they put that debt on, it was you know, SOFR was effectively zero. So the spread over SOFR on the debt cost was 300 to 400 basis points over SOFR. So their debt was somewhere in the three to 4% range. And now that debt is, is eight to 9%. And the deals just don't work at that level. And there's, there's been um, a, a huge increase in the amount of kind of operators in this in this single fam uh single asset syndication space over the last few years that um i think will will be forced sellers and that gets to a question about the debt holders and what they do with you know if they either have to you know unload the debt or 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 take the keys to these properties there was an academic journal article that I read recently that said that um, that detailed all of the issues that banks might have because of their exposure to commercial real estate. How do you position yourself to establish relationships and, and be in the market to either, I don't know, you can comment on whether you'd purchase the debt as a way to own a property or just as they, you know, as something goes into, you know, re owned real estate at the bank, you know, is that, can you participate in taking assets away from the banks because you know my sense is they certainly are not long-term owners of you know 15 million dollar multifam in tampa yeah yeah no it's i think this is another part of where our our institutional background benefits us amongst the the competition in this space is um we have kind of an understanding of of how this this the capital markets process works in a particularly in a, in a kind of stressed timeline like like we're in right now um i guess for, first comment is the the foreclosure process takes a really long time on on this stuff so that's that's one thing where i think you know in 2023 again maybe we were overly optimistic from a when some of this bad debt ultimately rolls through and gets and gets sold on the market um because like a, a year even 12 it, months what is it, that yeah i mean it can take it can take one to two years sometimes because it's got to like first you know what's what's been happening right now i think this is this is very interesting on kind of the timeline of, of things is, is first things that happen are the the borrowers should be communicating with the lender and saying hey you know is there anything any way that we can do a modification um or we can do an extension of the maturity date so conversations between borrower and and debt holder are going on on potential modifications and that takes you know two three months potentially and then you have you know are they going to do a modification or not and you know if they're not going to then you know you can the deal can go into special servicing and then special servicing is trying to figure out how, to, how this thing is ultimately going to get worked out um and then you have okay do we need to sell it and then they're doing bovs which is effectively an appraisal to say okay this is how much the property is potentially worth uh do we want to go through the sales process and you know the, the general sales process on the commercial real estate side takes 90 90 ish days as well so you know you you can easily get out to 12 months or even even past 12 months on certain assets depending on kind of the willingness of of groups to come to a resolution that makes sense for everybody um but you know you, you you've got this this process where these these things are happening right now and and where we are um is we've we've been in this in this market for a while and have a lot of relationships with kind of the the debt folks who originate originate deals and 
Um, we are talking to them on a on a weekly basis to say, hey, what's what are you seeing on your side? Where where are the pain points? You know, and we I think we're not the only ones, but a lot of a lot of people are saying, you know, we're we're looking to buy value add assets if if there's a seller of something in our buy box that makes sense. So kind of having these relationships uh, established and, and formed over the years puts puts you in a good position to be the be one of the chosen few who sees deals when those deals need to be offloaded for one reason or another. And if I think about your footprint, one of the concerns I might have as an investor is that how do you know, you know, Tampa, Austin, Phoenix, you know, Sacramento, Washington, you know, like how do you know all of those markets really well with a small team, right? Like I just think of like a big read or something like that would have local density and local talent and local scale where you guys are more opportunistic. How, how do you mitigate the risk of, I don't know, being, you know, kind of for lack of a better word, like the dumb money entering a market where you don't quite understand the supply demand dynamics? Yeah, that's, it's a fair question. And, you know, it's a, it's a big geographic footprint, like you said, but we're not looking to like, like Texas, for example, you know, we're, we're covering the four major metros in Texas. We're not covering kind of Lubbock, Texas and and a lot of these places that are kind of completely on the outskirts of of tertiary even. So, you know, we're we're covering select major metros across the the various the various markets that we're in. Um and you know, we've been we've been covering them for a while. So we we haven't acquired a lot of assets in these in these specific markets, but you know, like one of the things that my previous company uh, on the value add multifamily side, very similar strategy to what we're, what we're executing at Vanamore. Like I was, I was part of the team that we were buying assets in Dallas, Fort Worth, and we had been doing that for the last four to five years. So, um, we have been covering these markets for a long period of time. So they're not necessarily new to us. Um, and you know, once you have been covering them for a while, you establish relationships with sales, with the sales teams and with the, with the debt teams and with kind of the local, the local management and the various vendors in these, in these markets. And, you know, it just, it just takes time, um, to, to really get up to speed and, and be able to sufficiently cover, like you're saying, a, a lot of different markets, but, um, you know, we, we also, again we're we're acquiring assets that we think we could build um, a decent portfolio of so we don't want to buy one asset in Phoenix one asset in Pacific Northwest one asset in Texas like we, we we're gonna get kind of clusters of of assets in these kind of target locations that we want to acquire in um, and that also helps from the property management perspective side as well got it and you know, so there's this old adage that multifam assets trade at something like a, a 200 basis point premium to the 10 year. Obviously, when rates were zero, people were playing very low cap rates for high quality multifam assets. I think I've heard like Sunbelt was going like three and a half caps, which is a crazy number to me, um, being a you know, coming from a real estate family. But I mean, now that the 10 year treasury is you know around four percent, like how do you how do you think broadly about the the appropriate cap rates and spreads? that you'd be willing to underwrite, especially given 
where you're seeing some potential supply coming online in these markets? Yeah, there, there was there was a lot of markets where three and a half cap rates were were the norm. I mean, when you're when you're debt and the old adage is it, it's a decent kind of rule of thumb. You're what the tenure was at about one percent, right? And then you, so you were still two hundred over, and you could get positive financial leverage even at these historically tight cap rates. Which looking back is th those are a lot of folks that are that are not feeling too great right now. Um, but you know the way the way that we think about it is is we you know we we do want to see a spread to treasuries and the risk free rate um, treasuries that looks looks like today they're the ten years roughly three in the three eighties right now which is a big move down from where it was um, and the volatility in treasury rates is a whole different story but like it, it's you know cap rates move relatively slowly. But we've seen on kind of the public side on, on the rates, you can see a 50 basis point move in three days at this point. Um, so, you know, we've seen treasuries move aggressively back down um, and cap rates in a lot of the deals that we are kind of looking at need to be roughly five and a half to six percent going in cap rate. So, you know, we, we do have a there is a decent there is a decent spread um, to the 10 year there. Um, and you know, thinking about the spread to tenure, though we don't we don't think about it kind of in isolation because again, three and a half percent cap rates extremely aggressive. But when you're talking about a well located asset um, that has relatively newer construction at a going in six percent, five and a half percent cap rate that may not be two hundred basis points over over treasuries, but that feels pretty good from a long-term hold perspective and can generate even reasonable unlevered cash on cash um, if there is some value add component to it as well, which which generally there is. So um, I think the the old adage is is a good rule of thumb, but not in complete isolation of some of the other factors that that we like to think about. I think it's a good time to talk about you know what it, what the Vanamore value add is. You've talked a little bit about it, but when you acquire a property, talk about generally what the opportunities are to improve either the profitability or the leasing cadence. Um, you talked about mom and pops maybe not being as sophisticated, but what is what is the opportunity set that 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 you believe that you can bring? You know that a potential investor should be really interested in. Yeah, it's it's generally a combination of operational improvement. So reducing expenses plus uh, revenue uh, improvement as well. So bringing rents to market. Um, so usually it's a combination of the, of the two of those. And, you know, what we, we like to, we like to see and, and do are, you know, um, uh, the, there's a property that we're, we're closing on right now. And, and um, it's, it's a good example of I think a light value add strategy that we like to execute. So, you know, we're gonna we're we're budgeting to spend roughly seven thousand dollars a door um, on the interior and exterior. So, you know, exterior paint is one one item. Some improvements on the exterior landscape is another item. Um, interiors, you know, that's. It's new kitchen, new uh, kitchen cabinet fronts. It's replacing the flooring. It's 
plumbing and lighting fixtures. So those are all pretty basic and, and quick items to be able to execute and, you know, to achieve a, a, a much improved aesthetic from those, which generally can capture um, a little bit of rent premium versus where we're in places um, is, is an ideal profile where, you know, you, you are effectively just doing a, a, a turn. So a turn versus a renovation, the turn is just when uh, a person moves out and you bring someone else in, maybe you're just doing paint and new carpet. And we're doing effectively just like one minor step above a turn. Um, and that, that's not always the case with kind of properties that we acquire, but um, it, it's a good example of, of a lighter value add component that, that we think is, is an option out there. And, you know, some of the, some of the things on the expense side, I think that are worth mentioning, um, especially when you're talking about smaller sub-institutional size properties, you know, a lot of people will say, okay, I don't, I don't like this deal because it's, it's less than 50 units and you can't achieve economies of scale from a property management perspective on, on less than 50 units. And well, I think that's a fair comment a lot of times, um, it's not completely true if you have a group of smaller properties within a submarket that you can ultimately use um, the, the properties together to kind of achieve those same economies of scale. So you have, you know, three to four properties at 25 to 30 units each gets you over 100 units. And, you know, what that can do is that can then afford a full-time leasing and maintenance person across those units. Um, so you can kind of get to the same same place if you have the the right portfolio composition and kind of experience doing doing this this piece. Um, as well as some of the other things that that we like to do that that I'll highlight on the on kind of the um, the technology side of things is. The, the smaller mom and pop, smaller assets with mom and pop owners, a lot of times don't implement any techno, techno, uh, technology uh, improvements. And, you know, real estate in general is not at the forefront of, of technology uh, these days either. But, you know, at Vanmore, just a couple couple things that, that we do are, you know, we implement uh, virtual uh, virtual tours at each of our units. So you can kind of go, you can go online and do the virtual tour. Um, you can also do a self-guided tour. So you can kind of go there yourself. You can get access to the unit and you can go inside. And I think that that does two things. It's people like to do everything online that they can these days, which I get. Um, and, and two, it also helps us from a staffing perspective because you don't need to have somebody there all the time to show someone a unit. And so ultimately can reduce our expenses and also improve the the user experience as well with, with some of those things. So those those are those are a couple of the things that we do. And you know, on the you know, AI is a big is a big talking point and a big potential uh tech that's that's really changing a lot of areas and we are we are looking to utilize some of some of that with with kind of maintenance requests so you know people can put in a maintenance request and we can have the first line of defense be an ai chatbot that says uh you know what is it that you need and okay then it directs it to the right place so it's just a little bit more kind of on the efficiency improvement side that that does um, flow through even to these smaller properties. And also, again, improves the experience of having somebody who's there answering 
phones and answering questions when, when you need somebody. In addition to the technology side, you describe Vanamore as a data-driven company. You mentioned a couple of times that sometimes the mom and pops are maybe not charging market rents. Is that part of the, the maybe edge is that you have a data set of rents and have a better sense of what the market is at than maybe some of the uh, peers who don't use as much technology? Yeah, you know, we do, we, we, because we're, we're in the, in the markets constantly underwriting deals. We have our own kind of underwritten expense comps. We have uh, a, a good network of, again, kind of debt brokers that can, that can help out on understanding expense comps. I think another, another good example is again, on this, this property that we're, we're looking to close on any day now. Um, they had a, a very elevated water expense and, mm -hmm. You know, it was it was kind of overlooked by the this both the seller as well as the the selling agent um, didn't really highlight that that could be a potential expense savings point. And you know, we own another property down the street that's operating at a sufficiently reduced uh, water expense relative to that. So, kind of really understanding the the numbers and the data as far as what goes into the underwriting, I think is is definitely something that we we highlight and really rigorously go through when we're when we're pursuing and underwriting deals. This season of Compounders is sponsored by Deluba. Deluba was founded by a former hedge fund analyst to bring simplicity to the investment process. Deluba offers an AI-driven single source for all company reported data and allows for investment teams to make the most informed decisions in the shortest amount of time. For more information, please visit delupa.com/compounders. And when a big insurance company owns a building, it typically outsources the management to someone like Jones or CBRE. I'm interested in, in how you manage a property as a principal, like Vanamore is, versus an agent, which is you know the person, the property manager who works for CBRE. What, what do you think the difference is acting like an owner versus an a kind of an agent? Yeah, I think that's a it's an important important note. I think. Universally, property management is is tough. I mean, it's tough to find a great property management company, um, and it's a hard job to do. Not, not to, to discredit all the property management companies out there, it's a, it's a tough job to do. Um, so, you know, oversight of property management is is kind of a, a key function. And you know, one what we are doing at Vanamore is we are very very closely overseeing the local property management company that that we have kind of doing the day day to day blocking and tackling and you know we didn't we don't have a multi-billion dollar portfolio where we can't kind of keep a very close eye on what exactly is happening to your to your point and you know it, it, I, I do think that that is that's something like you know every every single deal that we're we're going to acquire is extremely important to us and our investors ultimately we're looking to kind of grow our portfolio and grow our investor base. And, you know, to grow our investor base, we we need to deliver on the properties that we have acquired. And, you know, a big piece of that is is making sure that we're efficiently managing and operating the property. So, you know, we have a we have a very uh highly focused uh approach of making sure that that property management is is being handheld when needed and and the business plan is being executed uh to the projections.
So it, it really feels like, and I don't know the timing of this, but it certainly feels like the next 18 to 36 months at the very long end, it's going to be a pretty interesting time to put money to work, you know, whether that's an office or, you know, multifam or, you know, the other areas where there might be some, some debt related distress uh, coming, coming around. I, what do you so what are you guys out there doing are you are you are you actively looking to raise a fund a fund or we talked about that as a potential long-term thing or are you more are you more looking for individual properties and looking to expand the number of potential investors who you who could participate in the syndication yeah we're so we're not actively looking to raise a fund um at some point again uh, I think that's in the future but we we are very actively looking to acquire more properties and uh, from a from a big picture perspective of opportunities that we're seeing you're starting to see select opportunities i think that make sense it's not this this broad based kind of you can buy anything uh at this point in, in time because there's still um th there's still some of that i think the time just needs to continue to to move forward to ultimately put more pressure on the sellers but you know what one of the one of the things that you said really i think hits the nail on the head you you have the capital markets impact that we've we've seen uh here and while i, I fully acknowledge i can't predict what's going to happen in the broader economy what what you haven't seen really is you haven't seen property fundamentals meaningfully deteriorate um so you've seen the impact from just the interest rate increase and that flows through to the valuations perspective but you haven't seen a huge drop off in vacancies for example so vacancy has ticked down um closer to you know anywhere between 92 percent occupancy to 95 uh it, it but it's it's well within kind of the historic norm um so you aren't seeing a huge impact of kind of macro economic downstream effects so if you had a lot of job loss for example then you may start having you know increased vacancies and and more strain on the the property fundamentals um and you know ultimately i think who, who it, it could happen maybe maybe it doesn't as well we look starting to look a lot more like a like a soft landing potential here in the economy than than it looked like three months ago at least um but you definitely have the the potential where you you could see kind of additional stress or pain on the market outside of just the the, the capital markets impact. But um, I, I do think it's it's a very interesting time to be starting to deploy. Like I think of it from a kind of just a portfolio allocation perspective. Dollar cost averaging into real estate at this point makes a lot of sense to me. I mean we're we're anywhere between. 15 and 35 percent off of peak peak valuations in late 2021 early 2022 um and anytime you're buying a hard a well-located hard asset um north of 25 percent off of where it was i think that's not a bad starting point could you go down potentially further maybe so um but dollar cost averaging to me kind of into this space makes a lot of sense and really really for folks to kind of start paying attention i think the other the other really interesting dynamic that's happening right now is is again like i like i mentioned we're well off of of peak valuations on on the multifamily side and just commercial real estate in general then you kind of 
juxtapose that to what's happening in the public equity markets. I mean, public equity markets are effectively at all time highs. So, you know, you have this, this huge gap between what public equity markets are doing versus private real estate. And, you know, at at some point, I think you're going to get a convergence. Is it real estate goes back up to the public equities or public equities kind of moves back down? Um, A little bit uncertain, but, but again, I, I think it, I, I think paying attention to this space now that we've, we've finally really seen a move from a downward move from where, where the valuations were, I think makes a lot of, a lot of sense. And, could be very interesting from a from a portfolio allocation into a very tax efficient long term long term asset. And you mentioned tax efficiency. You're one of the I think you are the first private real estate investor we've ever talked to. Would you remind our listeners um, if an investor is an individual or family office who's tax conscious, what are the benefits of owning real estate from a tax perspective? Yeah, I think it's one of the one of the biggest benefits of the of the asset class is is you um, by investing in it, you effectively are an equity owner in the real estate, and therefore you get kind of pass through revenue and expenses from the property. One of the largest expenses on a property is depreciation expense. Um, so, a, a lot of times, what happens when you purchase a property is is you know, you, you have your revenue, you have your expenses, um, and your depreciation expense ultimately takes your, your taxable liability down very low for what you actually have to pay taxes on. So, um, while you may be receiving cash flow, like actual cash flow into your bank account on a quarterly or annual basis, um, you're very likely going to be able to defer the bulk of that, um, taxes because of some of these depreciation and other expenses that flow through, um, you can defer them two, three, four, five years out until there's a capital event at the, at the end of the deal. And, you know, there's, there's also very favorable, um, bonus depreciation that's still in play right now. Um, it's phasing out over the coming years, but what that does is it lets you take an even larger chunk of depreciation expense year one that you can utilize to reduce taxable liability on your your rental income, um, and it it ultimately just is a is a very powerful tool for deferring taxes and and um, down to to when you ultimately have again a capital transaction, and then when there is you know a, an actual sale, I think perfect and very fitting to the compounders podcast here is, you know, you can still 1031 exchange at the end of that period. So let's say we own an asset that we've, we've improved it on, approved on it and the valuation has improved over the years. And then we look to sell it in year five. We can then defer the capital gain further by buying uh, or exchanging into a new asset um, using a 1031 exchange um, ability and then that defers the gain again so you can then effectively roll and compound your your basis tax tax free more or less another five ten years however long you hold that property and you can kind of continuously do this over the years and that's that's really what a lot of folks and groups and uh, have have done to really compound gains in real estate over the years and and have a very kind of tax efficient profile in doing it 
Yeah, I mean, it is it is a gift. The, the gift of the tax code is 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 follows down to the the private real estate investor. And so you've been through a number of real estate cycles. You lived through the great financial crisis. You watched COVID and that impact on all the asset classes. And now we're in a post-COVID interest rate rising period. What are some of the lessons you've learned about real estate investing as a result of those experiences? Yeah, you know, it's it's been a lot of there's been a lot of ups and downs um that i that i've seen in my career and you know, i think the first and foremost way that we like to think about it is is we want to make sure that we don't lose lose money um and with with real estate i take an approach that successful investors can build wealth in a tax efficient manner over a long investor horizon but you know with with that in mind the number one goal again is to make sure not to lose money on deals so so really having a good understanding of risk adjusted returns as well as downside protection is critical and something i don't take for granted having lived through the great financial crisis and some of these other uh some of these other markets and you know i i think that's probably the my my biggest takeaway is is understanding and appreciating risk adjusted return and and thinking about that i think these you know these the, the three and a half cap rate environment is a good example of you know your, your your ability for cap rates to to go down even further is is very low at that point and i think it's underappreciated how impactful the valuation move can be from a widening of cap rates from that historically tight level so um there's that's strikes me as the biggest uh takeaway and if we're having this conversation in seven years from now, what do you think, how would you define success at Vanamore? I think, I think success, uh, success to me looks, looks like when we have a lot of very satisfied and happy investors that will say that they've earned an above market return and have always been able to sleep well at night and, really appreciate the quality of information and team availability they receive. So, you know, I have a long background of investor relations as well. And we really pride ourselves on having an investor mindset and creating proper incentive alignment structures. So, you know, if we can build and operate the portfolio in a way that creates what I just referenced, I think the the growth goals um, that would define success um, that we discussed kind of at Vanamore will, will work work themselves out. Um, so I think that's probably one of the biggest, I think also, you know, again, I referenced it before, but, you know, having both the fund model and the syndication model, I think is, is also a, a big piece of success seven years from now. Cause I think, again, there's, there's definitely pros and cons of, of both of those. And I want to sneak in one more question about multifamily as an asset class as I've been doing some work in the real estate space. One of the complaints we've consistently heard about in the office space is the capital intensity there. You've got to spend millions or hundreds of thousands of dollars on lobbies and common areas and gyms, in addition to like a lot, lot of work when a tenant moves out. How how would you say multifam compares in that capital intensity to some of the other real estate asset classes? I assume that's one of the reasons why you think it's attractive um, relative to others, but I'm, you know, maybe that's just a guess. 
No, yeah, I think it's, I think that's again a fair point. Um, yeah, you don't have the, the, the TI, the tenant improvement aspect of that on all multifamily assets. You do, you know, there, you, we will be underwriting and likely be acquiring deals that have communal space in them, be it a pool or a gym or, or um, kind of a, a common area. But it, it, it's, it, it's generally, I think it's going to be less capital intensive than than some of those big office projects and it's also um you know i think it's going to be a little bit smoother profile as well you know like you don't have these this one tenant that can ultimately leave and you have to spend this two million dollars to get a new tenant in there um you've got a much more diversified from with respect to kind of the number of, of tenants in a building um that that helps create a smoother profile, both from the revenue and the expense side. Um, so, you know, I think, I think it is, it is a fair comment to say that, that the capital expenditure piece is a little bit, uh, a little bit more favorable relative to some of the other asset classes. I mean, this has been a great conversation about multifamily real estate and the opportunities and how cap rate moves have, have impacted the asset class. So we'll close with uh, what the question we always ask is, what do you think is the most underappreciated aspect of the investment opportunity in front of Animore right now? Yeah, I think the appreciation of how much valuations have come down from peak, peak pricing already, I think is the most underappreciated. And we, you know, we just, we just talked about it, but really that, the size of that drawdown for people who aren't in the space, they just don't realize it because a lot of people's perspective on real estate is the home that they own. Um, so the single family side, you know, the single family side hasn't really missed a beat. You could, you could even argue that in a lot of markets, it's still going up. Um, even when you have mortgage rates at seven to 8%. So, you know, a lot of people don't really appreciate the the magnitude that some of these properties are are down from where they were so you know again i think what what does that mean i think that it means that it's it's a good time for people to start paying attention to the space if they haven't before but they are interested um a lot of people have been waiting for for this this drawdown and not everyone realizes that that there's been a good amount already so i think that is the most uh underappreciated aspect of the opportunity. Well, I mean, I think you have uh, an interest is an interesting starting point and it seems like it's going to be a compelling time to put money to work in, in multifam space. So good luck with that. We really appreciate you being on Compounders. Thanks, Ben. Really enjoyed being here. <laughs>